Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Norm Ornstein, Senior Fellow Emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute, where he's been studying politics, elections, and the U.S. Congress for more than four decades. He is a New York Times and Washington Post bestselling author, and his articles and op-eds have been widely published in a variety of outlets, including Foreign Affairs, Politico, The Wall Street Journal, and The Atlantic. He also often appears on just about every major television news outlet. Norm has a PhD and master's in political science from the University of Michigan, Go Blue, and a BA from the University of Minnesota, Go Gophers, and is freshly back in the continental United States after a holiday escape to Hawaii. Norm, thanks for joining me today. It's always a pleasure, Reed. So, you know, you and my dad go back a ways, and I think I first met you several years ago in the context of sort of political reform. And, you know, the political system is one that you've been literally and figuratively at the middle of for many years. So I want to talk today about January 6th and how you remember it, the idea of why D.C. can't seem to have the scales fall from its eyes. But first, I want to get your perspective on the conservative movement. Obviously, AEI, longtime center-right think tank, long a go-to place for folks in the Republican and conservative firmament to give speeches, to establish ideas. So when you came to D.C., I think in the 70s, you were a professor at Catholic University, and you quickly got the reputation of being an expert, especially when it comes to Congress. So think back to then and to where we are now. Could we still call it a conservative movement? Do you think that there were people who always had this sort of overarching authoritarian-ish thing in mind? Or is it one of those things where they had policy ideas and ideological goals and the monster got out of the box? You know, we could speak for hours on this read, but just to go back, I came here in the fall of 1969 as a congressional fellow, worked on the Hill. You know, the Vietnam War was the deeply divisive issue back then. And of course, lots of tension with Richard Nixon and a Democratic Congress. But the Vietnam War was not one that was divided cleanly along partisan lines. I actually worked in the Senate with a group of five senators who were trying to end our involvement in Vietnam. And they included Republicans, Charlie Goodell, who's the father of Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner. I would add parenthetically, in this case, the apple fell very far from the tree. (laughs) Don't get me started on the NFL. And Mark Hatfield of Oregon and Jacob Javits of New York with Democrats. And what we also have to keep in mind is that even though there was enormous tension, to say the least, between Richard Nixon and the Democrats in Congress, we had some bipartisan buy-in for things like health reform. Nixon's health reform, which was really put together by Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and a guaranteed annual income, Nixon initiatives that were actually killed by Democratic liberals. Ted Kennedy later said that 
blocking Nixon's health reform was the biggest legislative mistake he had made. We got revenue sharing that was bipartisan. We had a very different sense of what liberal and conservative were from where we are today and for where we've been in the last decade. What I would say is over really more than five decades of working around Congress and with administrations and with lots of people from both sides of the aisle, conservative back then meant you wanted a more limited role for government, but also believed that there were essential features that government had to do, that you wanted fiscal discipline, but fiscal discipline meant that you got and paid for the government that you wanted, and then you would raise the revenues to make sure that you would end up over time with balanced budgets or something at least close to it, that you wanted the best and brightest in those parts of government that you viewed as essential, that you were conservative and at the same time pragmatic enough to realize that in some instances you would need public-private partnerships. But what also just sort of shined through all of this was that you had leaders who understood the value in a political system of not moving in a radical direction, that compromise was the essence of the American political system, that you would view those on the other side of the aisle as good patriotic Americans who just had misguided views about policy, but there were common problems and your goals in government were to work together to solve those problems And the main difference that you had with liberals and Democrats in working to solve those problems was not a recognition of what the problems were, but of routes to get there. And, you know, I was pretty close to both Kennedy and Orrin Hatch, who had this odd couple friendship over many decades. But we got the children's health insurance program because they both recognized that we had a problem with kids who didn't have insurance. And they found ways to put a policy together and then did horse trading to make sure that it was balanced and reasonable. All of that read is gone. There is still a conservative movement. I would add, I went to AEI part-time in 1978, 43 years ago. I went to full-time in 1984, became an emeritus a year ago meaning I'm still involved and we still have many projects we're working on. But during that time, and I would characterize myself as a raging moderate, the term that Al Gore had coined, but you know, my heroes included AEI scholars like Herb Stein and Robert Goldwyn and Walter Burns, conservatives, but who fit that mold of what we're talking about. There are still some just terrific scholars who look for conservative ways of solving problems. Domestic problems, economists like Michael Strain, international ones, the head of AEI's foreign policy division, Corey Shockey, many, many others. But the fact is that if we think about conservative policymakers, they're virtually non-existent in Congress now. And this is not a conservative movement in the larger political system. You look at most of the governors or the state legislators or the members of Congress, they are radicals. And if they were once conservative 
problem solvers. They're part of what is now a radical cult. And what's the difference? Radicals believe that government is bad. All government is bad. And if any part of it works, that's not good because people will like it and want more of it. And it means it's a theology and not an ideology anymore. You ignore all of the evidence where you have government working in a way that you want. But just as importantly, maybe more important than that, is the set of leaders who kept the glue together, who believed in the fundamental honesty of a political system, who believed in the legitimacy of the opposition, who believed that there were elections that you won and elections that you lost, but primarily you had to make sure that people voted and that the system worked fairly. That's gone now. Now you have no leaders who put checks on this system. And the fact that in the aftermath of January 6th, after all the members of Congress in the Capitol had their lives seriously endangered, they cleaned up the Capitol, they came back later, two-thirds of House Republicans still voted to say that the election was illegitimate, that Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell found a way to cover up for Donald Trump and killed the January 6th commission that was a bipartisan agreement to move forward. All of that tells you that if there's a conservative movement, it's centered around people like you and those who make up the Never Trump movement, the Lincoln Project, people like Stuart Stevens, a host of others But other than a Liz Cheney and an Adam Kinsinger, they're just not present in most elective offices. So let me ask you this. Anne Applebaum, who wrote Twilight of Democracy, said that one of the downfalls of democracies is when the society can no longer have a common conversation. Maybe to oversimplify it, that Walter Cronkite came on at six o'clock every night and, you know, he sort of laid out the issues of the day for the country. And the country agreed broadly on that discussion. Now, not only do individual Americans not have a common language or a common discussion, but also one side believes that there is a role for government in everything. And the other side believes, like, burn the whole thing to the ground. And that doesn't make for a particularly stable system. To say the least, we're in a very, very dangerous period. And we know First, that for decades we've been building towards some element of this. You know, one of the people who I became friends with and have admiration for, Bob Inglis from South Carolina. When Bob came in as part of the Gingrich group in 1994, he sort of fit the stereotype. He was a bomb thrower. He had a disdain for Congress and the political system. He had a six year self imposed term limit left, was out for six years, looked in the mirror, looked at what was happening, said, this is terrible, came back. And for six years, his major issue, the thing he cared most about was climate, pushing to get a dialogue where his conservative policies for dealing with climate would be at the forefront. But the fact is, his colleagues had no interest because they didn't even want to concede that there was an issue with climate, that it's a hoax. So if you can't have the debate and deliberation that starts with understanding what the problem is and then debating how you get down the road to finding solutions, you're lost. We have that. But what we also have now is what happens when there's a cult, which is you come to believe unhinged things. 
You have a theology that isn't shaken by facts or evidence or science. And the fact that even now, two-thirds or more of Republicans in the country still believe that Donald Trump won the election, that we find these crazy differences in how we're dealing with a pandemic divided sharply along party lines, even things, you know, whether it's masks or just common sense public health provisions and the idea that people are demanding when a loved one is on a ventilator that the hospital give hydroxychloroquine, condemning the vaccines, that we have governors who promote pseudoscience, even as they watch people die, but even more chillingly, that we have 30% of Republicans, substantially greater figure than Democrats or independents who believe that violence is appropriate if your way of life is threatened. We're in a very dark place, and I'm fearful for what it will bring. And I would just add, Reed, that if Donald Trump had never come along, because of the structural anomalies in our political system, a system designed by the framers as a pragmatic way of bringing in states. But at a time when the ratio of population between the smallest and largest states was about 10 to 1 or 12 to 1, and now it's 70 to 1, we look out there now and we're almost at a point where 30% of Americans will elect 70 senators because 70% of Americans live in only 15 states. That we're going to have questions of legitimacy in the political system, even if we didn't have an outside tribal media and social media promoting fake and conspiratorial stuff that people are buying into, or even if we didn't have coup masters like Donald Trump or his enablers. So I want to play a clip briefly from Fox News this week. Rob, go ahead and roll that, and then I want to ask you one more question. But do I feel sorry for Joe Biden? No. I work at Fox. I want to see disarray on the left. It's good for America. It's good for our ratings. So that's Jesse Waters. I'm not even sure what show it was, but you hear him. He's gleeful talking about the fact that disparaging the president, discord amongst Democrats in the left makes him happy. It's good for the ratings. You hear the cackling in the background. I mean, Norm, it's like the biggest mouthpieces think this is all some sort of joke. You know, Fox is no longer news, of course. And I do believe, Reed, that if and when the history of this era is written and we start to label who the biggest villains were, Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch are going to be near the top of that list. They have made decisions. I'm sure that they are commercially driven decisions, at least in part, but regardless, that are to promote fake news and insurrection. And they have gotten rid of or driven out any of the people who were honest news people, a couple who remain, who sort of still at times might fill that bill, say nothing when we get horrific things happening, like Tucker Carlson's propaganda film about January 6th. And I want to give a hat tip, especially to my colleague, even though I'm now mostly retired, Mr. Goldberg, for quitting when he saw this happening, that this was just too much, Jonah showing a solid level of integrity. But we've got Fox, but we have many, many worse things. And I'll tell you, I was in many ways chilled the other day. This idiot talking on the phone with President Biden on Christmas with his kids said, let's go, Brandon. 
then went out and said, you know, I'm not a Trump guy. I don't believe that stuff, but I was just trying to make a joke and now I'm victimized. People are attacking me. Then he goes on one of these shows and says he's all in on Donald Trump. And now he's being urged to run for office and he's saying, I'm waiting to see if God wants me to do so. What happens when you have a political party that no longer moves to recruit the thoughtful, deep, policy-oriented conservatives, but the people who stumble into fame of sorts because of dumb actions that they take? And of course, we've seen the same thing happen with the mega celebrity status of a 17-year-old who illegally carries an assault weapon across state lines, murders two people, whether self-defense, which the jury said happened or not. This was still a reckless action by a young person who needs help and now is elevated to mega celebrity status. What kind of culture does this say the country is moving toward and it's being endorsed and amplified by outlets like Fox. So let me ask you this. I mean, again, I grew up in D.C. I grew up going to the Capitol. My dad worked there off and on, either was at the Capitol or was at the NRCC and back and forth for years. And, you know, I mean, when I was a kid, the Republicans had been in the minority for years, right? So it was a different mindset altogether. But we also had people like Bob Michael and Guy Vanderjack, people my dad worked for. They were terrific public servants and thoughtful, you know, gentlemen of the highest order. But now, to your point about the performative aspect of being, frankly, a Republican, although there are Democrats who do it too, the people that you have known that have crossed over, who are now okay with this, they're either explicitly okay with it or they're complicit. You know, two of my best friends, two of my groomsmen that I haven't spoken to in years. How do you explain that? Because it's not like they don't know better. There are many who do. And when Liz Cheney said that a very substantial number of her colleagues, maybe a hundred, you know, basically said to her, I'm with you, but I just can't do anything. It was shocking. You know, uh, going back, I was somewhat close to Bob Michael. I don't think I've admired anybody more in public life, just a model public servant. I felt the same way about John Rhodes, who was actually a fiercer partisan than Michael. But just a really good man who cared about the country and about the institutions that he was involved in. I'm in the same position that you are in the sense that I could look at a number of Republicans, especially in the Senate now, some still in the House, who I've worked with before, who I've had very good relationships with, some good friendships with, and I can't even be in the same room with them now. And the fact is that the moral backbone the spine that it takes, the sense of moral integrity that you expect and hope will be in people elected to office and then taking an oath to protect and defend the Constitution. For most of them, it's gone. And why? You know, I've grappled with this. I looked at, for example, Lamar Alexander. And, you know, we've had people say, well, look, they're worried about a challenge in the primary from the right. Or, you know, they're going to leave, they're going to want another job, or maybe be a lobbyist, and you need the clients. And that doesn't explain the Lamar Alexander, who during his tenure, here's a man, you know, who had the most distinguished career in public service and in public life, a governor, a senator, a cabinet member, a leader in so many areas, years as chair of the Health Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, 
no hearings on corruption in the Department of Education in the way that uh, child separation occurred, which was in large part the responsibility of the Department of Health and Human Services for which he had oversight authority, protects Trump on impeachment and in other ways. And then in his 80s, goes back to Tennessee, has wealth. He's not going to have another job. So why? And my answer to that, and for so many of these others who are still in office, including some who are retiring and have not changed in the slightest, is this is not a party anymore, Reed. It is a cult. What defines a cult? As much as anything, it is the fear of being shunned or excommunicated. And it's not just your colleagues. It is all the people you interact with back home. So if you are viewed as an apostate, and say you're Rob Portman going back to Cincinnati, you're Lamar Alexander going back home to Tennessee, you are going to have lunch at the country club, maybe play a round of golf with your usual foursome, go out with some couples at night, and you're going to be viewed as a traitor by a large number of the people you have interacted with in your entire life. So even if you have money like a Portman or an Alexander, you're faced with a stark reality. Now, the question is, where does your integrity lie? And that's why I have such immense respect for Liz Cheney and for Adam Kinsinger, because they have said, I may lose a lot of friends, but I took an oath and I'm going to follow that oath. And I believe in the integrity of our political system, in our democracy, in our Republican form of democracy, in our elections. And I'm not going to stand by while a president and then an ex-president, the same person out of office, try to destroy our political system for their own gain. And the amorality of it, starting, I would say, with leaders like Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell, who are not leaders, they put the value of grasping for power and staying in office over every value that we should hold dear in a political system. And it's just shocking and shameful. I think you have a kinder outlook on the Portmans and the other retiring types, because to your point, they are not people who are going to go begging for work. And so, you know, part of it would seem to me to be like, if your friends get mad at you because you said, look, I had to take a stand on a moral basis to save the Constitution and save the country. And if you don't want to be my friend because of it, like, I think we know where we stand. Like, you'd like to believe that there was more of that, but I guess that's not the case. Let me turn to McCarthy for a second. It's my belief, and I think our belief broadly, that even if Republicans take the House, McCarthy never holds the Speaker's gavel. What do you think? I agree. I mean, talk about a naked attempt to do anything, no matter how deleterious to the country or the House, just to stay in power. That's Kevin McCarthy. We know he knows better. We know it from that phone call that he had back in 2016 with his colleagues, where he said, you know, we got a couple of people on the Russian payroll. Him and Dana Rohrabacher. Yes. And then moved away from that and denied it. And then the way he behaved on January 6th and the way he's dealt with it now, that he moves to punish Liz Cheney, but not to do anything about Madison Cawthorn, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Paul Gosar, 
or those who we know were involved in helping to plan the insurrection on January 6th tells us all you need to know. But because he is nothing but a grasping person, able to move into the leadership basically because he did little favors for all the members and sent them cards. And was good at raising money. Yeah, and good at raising money. If I had to guess now, if they win a majority and they choose from within their own ranks, the speaker would be Jim Jordan. And I do not rule out that possibility that they would go for Donald Trump. And he would use that platform to foment violence again and to try and protect himself from legal actions. And we're at a point where they think about bringing back a corrupt figure like Donald Trump and making him Speaker of the House. Because as listeners, I'm sure know, the uh, Constitution does not say that the Speaker has to be a member of the House. The House shall choose its Speaker. Tells you about the depravity of where this former party, now cult, has gone. But the idea that, frankly, a clown like Jim Jordan would be the person put in as Speaker. And let me add, Ted Cruz said that if Republicans recapture the House and the Senate, the first thing we'll do is impeach Joe Biden. There's no grounds for doing it. It's just, okay, let's do it because we can. But I would add one chilling thing, Reed, which is if they put Trump in as Speaker, making him next in line for the presidency after the vice president, I would really fear for the lives of the president and the vice president. There would be unhinged people encouraged to say, this is how we can get Donald Trump back in power. And that's where we come back to the fact that violence is now accepted by way too many people as a legitimate tool. All of this is what we've seen happen over and over again, as Ann Applebaum, among others, who knows her stuff, have pointed out what we've seen in other countries. You know, Donald Trump, of course, yesterday gave his full-throated endorsement to Viktor Orban in Hungary. Viktor Orban is a jack-booted dictator who has moved his country in a corrupt fashion away from democracy and towards authoritarian rule and crony capitalism along the way. And if that's the role model for Donald Trump, and he is along with Erdogan and Putin and Sisi, that's now the model for way too many Republicans in office and out in the country. Well, and, you know, I want to turn to January 6th here in a second. But, Norm, you mentioned that Cheney said there might be as many of 100 of her colleagues who sort of cheer her on from the sidelines but can't do it publicly. But, you know, one of our supporters saw his member of Congress at a farmer's market last fall. Democratic member who said, look, I got to tell you, there's a lot of guys in that conference who I think would be fine if we were Turkey. Oh, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, again, you look at where recruitment is occurring and what people are now running for Congress and winning nominations and in winning nominations and then showing a level of corruption or extremism have no likelihood of a backlash among their own constituents, that tells you that the willingness, not just of those members, but of a lot of their own voters, to move us towards a kind of autocracy is just greater than we have seen before. You know, circling back to your first question, we've had these undercurrents since the beginning of the Republic. Every society has its extremists. 
every country has cultish groups and extremist groups. You know, you go back to the 1930s with Father Coughlin, all kinds of horrific views and with a huge radio audience. You go up to the impeacher Earl Warren billboards, the Ku Klux Klan around for a very long period of time. They're extremists on the left, you know, SDS and the movements in the 1960s and on the right. But the direct threat that has now permeated a much larger group in the society is unlike anything that we have seen since the Civil War, I believe. Let's talk about that. So a year ago, several hundred people at Donald Trump's urging stormed the Capitol. We all know what happened. We saw those images. You know, people lost their lives dozens, if not a couple hundred police officers injured, you know, the halls of Congress just desecrated in every possible way. On that day, did you think it was going to go down? Like, I mean, did you think we'd lose the republic that day? I was scared to death. You know, the scenes of storming the Capitol, the pictures inside the Capitol, the number of people who pre-planned this were wearing paramilitary equipment. We had no idea what kinds of weapons they were bringing into the Capitol. We know that some of these groups wanted to overthrow the entire system. The putting up the scaffolding and the chance of hang Mike Pence and a president who refused to do anything or say anything that might bring a halt to it, who we now know was just sitting there watching on television. What we got relayed by a member of a Republican in Congress, Herrera Butler, of the conversation that Trump had with Kevin McCarthy when he feared that there would be a breach of the House chamber and that many of them might be killed. And Trump said, well, they just care more about the election than you do, Kevin. All of that, even what we knew at the time, made me fearful that they could succeed, that they could kill a lot of members of Congress and maybe even kill Mike Pence. We escaped barely. And of course, we had been watching and watching to see if reinforcements would show up in the form of the National Guard. We now know pretty clearly that the fix was in at the Defense Department. And one of the things that puzzles me is how General Flynn's brother, who was clearly there in the room when they refused to allow the National Guard to get out, now has moved to an even higher position of authority in the Defense Department. There's something wrong, even within continuing elements of our system. The number of police who are a part of this effort to storm the Capitol, meaning that we have police departments that have been infiltrated by radicals. All of that made me fearful on the 6th. And now I'm more fearful because what we see is explicit efforts to say, well, we failed last time. How can we turn that around and correct those mistakes the next time? And, you know, heading towards 2022 and 2024, first, I am very grateful that we have a House Select Committee that is doing yeoman work and that may at least come up with powerful evidence of how this was engineered at the highest levels of government, including members of Congress and a president himself and many of those around him including, I might add, his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, but a whole lot of others in the Defense Department and in the White House and elsewhere. And maybe we will get action taken that will hold everybody who is engaged in this insurrection and coup attempt to account. I am 
still modestly hopeful that we will get some voting and election reforms done, overcoming the filibuster in the Senate, and that maybe we might even get some bipartisan agreement to reform the Electoral Count Act, including putting in serious direct criminal penalties for anybody trying to interfere with the election and the counting of electoral votes that Liz Cheney has thrown out there. If we don't, that'll tell us that they've gone even further down the rabbit hole. But I'm not confident at all in where we're going to go. And frankly, if we have a House taken over by Republicans where the leading figures are the Jim Jordans of the world and where leading voices are going to be the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Lauren Boeberts and Madison Cawthorns, we're not in a good place in this country. No. And, and I think that, you know, January 6th, in my mind anyway, was the beginning of something, not the end of something. We've seen all the things that have sprung from it, making voting much more difficult in a lot of states. But also one thing reading Barton Gelman's piece in The Atlantic, too, that had not really gotten into my head yet was how much of the mechanics of vote counting has now been taken away from state officials, local officials put in the hands of legislative cronies to make almost unilateral decisions on things, which is very concerning. It is deeply concerning and it will continue to be. And even if we get the Protect the Vote Act and the uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Act done, that's not going to stop state legislatures from trying in 2024 to muddle up the electoral vote count. And unfortunately, we also have a Supreme Court where we know that there are justices led by Sam Alito, who's already made it clear that even though the Constitution explicitly says in Article One that Congress has the authority to regulate federal elections, that he would throw that aside because the state legislatures are supreme when it comes to electoral counts. The framers made it clear that first and foremost, Congress could protect those elections, not state legislatures. And Alito's made it clear, and there are other justices, maybe even five who would go along with him, that if the state legislatures violate their own state laws and their state courts, that they'll throw that out. We have a lot of issues out there, and we will see this in 2022 if Congress doesn't act when it comes to the House and Senate to try and engineer elections, even where they're going to lose them, where they can make sure that they have majorities. This is what you expect in a banana republic. And that's the direction we're heading unless we find some way to take action. I had hoped that there would be at least a few Republicans in the Senate who have shown on occasion integrity. Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski would say, you know, we need to reform the election system so that it becomes fair, but not one of them. And then it comes down to Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin. If we don't get those protections done in the next couple of months, I think we may be toast. You know, in that weird crucible that is the Beltway, and you can stretch it up to New York City if you want. Why is it that there are so many people, and I'll call it an institutional Washington, the institutional Acela Corridor, the media, staff, the sort of what I call political bureaucrats who bounce in and out of Congress, they bounce in and out of administrations, they go to an association, corporations, the U.S. Chamber, whatever it is, but they hang around. 
we see now sort of amongst elite thought people that it's starting to break through a little bit. But why can't we convince, let's say, national Democrats that, yes, there are issues that we need to solve structural income inequality, you know, the environment, whatever else. But none of that gets done unless we have a stable democracy. Like, why can't we get people there? Why are we still squabbling? No offense to people who truly believe in it about Build Back Better when like none of that stuff is ever going to happen until and unless like Democrats hold the House, hold the Senate. I'm not a policy guy anymore. Never was really. But why does the media both sides everything? Why does the political environment in this country allow the Foxes and the OANNs to drive the narrative in which the response is either, oh, no, it's not, or like they somehow fall in line behind it? You know, Margaret Sullivan, who was for some years the ombudsman at the New York Times, now writes a column on the media in the Washington Post, and she has a powerful column that's in the print edition today that was up a couple of days ago, saying that mainstream media have to take this threat to democracy at least as seriously as they appear to take the threat to the climate. And they're not. And I've been harping on this for more than 10 years, as you know. We get both sidesism, I think, for a few reasons. One is that you have this sort of ingrained in journalism that what you're supposed to do is report both sides of the story. It doesn't matter if in some instances there is only one side or there might be 10 sides. That's what you're supposed to do. But, you know, one of the things that I wrote in our book, it's even worse than you look back in 2012, is a balanced treatment of an unbalanced phenomenon distorts reality. And there's no learning curve, it appears, in any of this. A second reason is for the mainstream media which has, of course, been charged for decades as having a liberal bias. And the fact is that an awful lot of the mainstream media, you had more liberals than not. And some of the framing of the news reflected that. But mostly, mainstream media outlets like The Times, The Post, and others have tried to be fair, but they are stung by that criticism. And they bend over triply backwards to try to avoid it. We've seen this on cable news as well. CNN, which for so long decided that they had to come up with a Trump acolyte, paid handsomely to represent that point of view. And then, of course, they ended up paying a fortune because serially the ones that they picked were caught up in their own horrific scandals and were embarrassment themselves, spouting lies and distortions. But that's a common phenomenon. What strikes me as so disheartening about this is even if they know better, they don't change. The willingness of the media, and there is, of course, a lot of not just defensiveness and myopia. You can attack others, but don't attack me. But an unwillingness to learn and to have a feedback loop, which ironically is suicidal, because if we move really further in the direction of a Turkey or a Hungary, the first victims are going to be the free press. Look what's happening in Hong Kong. That's a model that they're going to see followed and that there is this stubborn refusal to understand what's going on. And headlines every day, AP, the Times especially, that reflect the both sides mentality is just dismaying. And what about, you know, corporate America? 
why do they continue to see this as transactional? Why do they not believe, in your mind, that they bear some responsibility? We saw that there were dozens of companies who said they wouldn't give to seditionists in 2021. Most of them went back on their word, not surprisingly. Do they just not believe it matters? Do they not care? Do they not understand? Is it death by lobbyist? It's more of that than anything else. You know, you always hate to, or at least are, you know, sort of cautious about using the German analogy, but it's appropriate in this case. The business community was as culpable in Germany in the rise and consolidation of power of Adolf Hitler as anybody else. They hated the Social Democrats, who they believed taxed them and regulated them, and they thought Hitler was a kind of useful tool, a kind of buffoon, and if they put him out there, they could neutralize the ones who were taxing them and regulating them, and of course, ended up with the disaster that followed. Well, and remember that he got rid of unions. He did all the things that they sort of desperately wanted, and in return, you know, they financed his rise and then ultimately went along with... I'm re-listening to the rise and fall of the Third Reich and the passage I just listened to was Krupp being more than happy to start making cannons and tank turrets again. They were perfectly happy. Boeing, you know, we saw is now giving to people who voted against certification, get 31% of their annual revenues from the federal government, nor my most cynical side. So they don't really care who's in charge as long as the cash keeps flowing. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, if we want to take this back, The alteration in outlook in corporate America, driven by this notion of shareholder value, that what matters is the next quarter and the share results. Take this back to the big tax cut in 2017. Companies who said, well, we'll reinvest, of course we'll reinvest, didn't reinvest to build the country at all. They bought their shares back so they could increase the share prices and reveled in the lower tax rates, not just for their companies, but for their personal use. Because if you raise the share prices, their own stock options would be worth more. There is a level of greed and myopia that's different from what we had in the past. You know, decades ago, it was controversial, but we had the chairman of General Motors who famously said to a congressional committee, What's good for General Motors is good for America. And people said, this is terrible. But he then said, and vice versa. In other words, what's good for the country is what's good for General Motors. I've known CEOs who were heroes in the past. Roy Vagelos, when he was the head of Merck. Jim Olson, when he was the head of J&J, who said, you know, we have to look at the longer term, but we need a strong, fair country and political system that works or everything that we earn in the next quarter isn't going to matter at all. That's gone now for so many CEOs. And if they can keep their tax rates down and if they can operate the way they want to and protect their own company's narrow self-interest, and remember, most of them are global companies now. So America's self-interest isn't necessarily what they're most concerned about. They're going to go ahead and do it. And they are now useful tools of insurrectionists and a violent fanatic cult. Well, and, you know, we've seen whether or not it was Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Rick Scott of Florida, all of them said it really in the wake of, I believe, Coca-Cola and Delta after the fact, admittedly decrying what was going on in the Georgia legislature vis-a-vis voting. You know, we want companies that are patriotic. 
And if we need to ensure their patriotism, that's what they'll do. Ted Cruz basically said, hey, Coca-Cola, we know that you owe us $12 billion in taxes, right? It doesn't seem very far from that to somebody, you know, let's say 2025 with a Republican United government, you know, a bunch of revenue agents showing up in Atlanta saying, Mr. CEO, you're coming with us until you pay up. And we know that Donald Trump was more than willing when he was president to use the IRS for purposes of intimidation. We know that the consequences for business, if they tried to take a stand, could be more difficult. We know that they're most interested in access now to members of Congress, whatever their viewpoints are, as long as they protect their own narrow pecuniary interests. You know, I did a few years ago for the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. I did a project and then a special edition of their journal, Daedalus, on institutions and the common good. We had essays done on all institutions, including corporations. And there are two things to keep in mind. One is you can have a constitution, you can have laws, you can have rules, but if you don't have norms that build on those, everything goes away. And at the same time, the exoskeleton of a fair society, of a Republican form of democracy, of any democracy, is the institutions in civil society. If they lose their protective value, if they no longer have leaders who are willing to lead to protect the fundamentals of the system, you are likely lost. And we just don't have that now. And I think, you know, at the top of the list of those who've abandoned that effort is business. There are exceptions, of course, but we're not in a good place there either. Norm, so before we let you go, what's the next year look like for you? What do you think happens in the next year? Right now, I think the next six weeks are an absolutely critical time. We have a few things occurring. One is we're going to start to move to public hearings by the January 6th committee in the House. Those public hearings, if they get the appropriate amount of attention, of course, we know they're not going to change the minds of those who are deep believers in a theology and who think that January 6th was a false flag operation or was done by Antifa, but they might jolt enough people that we can at least get some movement towards reforming the Electoral Count Act. The next few weeks, we are going to know whether we're going to have 50 senators, at least, who are willing to make an alteration in the Senate rules so that we can get laws in place that provide guardrails around the election system, enough at least that we won't have elections legitimately won, stolen away by partisan actors for the House and Senate in 2022, for the presidency in 2024. I think we're going to have a better picture by the 1st of March, or even a little bit earlier, of whether we have a fighting chance to preserve our system. And I just say one more thing, Reed, before I go. I've long been a believer in what we have called the rule of three, that to get a party to change its course away from something self-destructive and more generally bad, the party has to lose three elections in a row. You lose one election and you basically say, ah, we were so dumb. Look at the candidate we nominated. You lose two and you say, ah, how could we be so dumb we did it again? But you don't see any reason to change. You lose three in a row 
and you give traction to those who want to restore decency, legitimacy, honesty to the process. For the Republican Party, that would mean a very conservative party. It would mean a party that reflected Liz Cheney's views, not the views of a Mark Hatfield or a Charlie Baker. And that's where the 2022 midterms become even more important. If somehow, with the expectations high that Republicans will win back the House and may win back the Senate, if they lose both, then I think traction there for the never Trumpers and for others, conservatives, not radicals, to say, you took us down a terrible path. We've got to try and do better. I think we have a fighting chance. Not going to happen soon, but we have a chance to restore it. And, you know, when Tom Mann and I wrote, it's even worse than it looks. And the Washington Post, Carlos Lozada, who was then the editor of the Outlook section, the day the book was published, did an excerpt and he titled it, which sold a lot of books for us. Let's just say it, the Republicans are the problem. It was interesting. I had a lot of former Republican members come up to me and say, thank you for doing this. You're trying to save the party. I had a lot of then serving members say to me, that is the worst possible message we could have. Shame on you. But the reality is, if we don't have two functioning, problem-solving political parties, we're in a dead, dead place. We can't survive in a democracy with one party. Even if they don't create an autocracy, if we still have a democracy, but we have one party and one non-functioning party, that can't survive. It can't last. The future of this country depends in the immediate term on stopping insurrection, stopping illegitimacy. But beyond that, we have to try and find a way to restore a genuine, conservative, problem-solving Republican Party that believes in the governing institutions, in the legitimacy of our political system. Well, listen, from your lips to God's ears, before we let you go, where can our listeners find you on social media? I do a lot of Twitter because it's cathartic for me and it's at Norm Ornstein. All right. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen, Norm Ornstein. Thank you for joining me today. Everybody, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.